identifies as being the truth about us, even though that's not what God says about us. In psychology, we call that cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions, which means simply that your brain can feel you into believing something about yourself that is not actually true. It's something the evil one tells you is true, and you have now accepted the lie as truth, but it's not actually true. This is not what God would use as descriptive terms over you, but you've accepted that, and so those lies become uh, the default patterns in our thinking, which affects the way we feel, which ultimately affects the way we act, the things that we do. That's so very important because of the depth of our woundedness, and we've all been wounded in many different ways throughout the course of our lifetime. We all bring that woundedness into every single relationship we have with other people. And when you bring a lot of wounded people together, you have, you have a melting pot for um, a lot of conflict, right? Because hurt people hurt people. Hurting people will lash out. Hurting people will push back. Hurting people become oversensitive to what things people might say to them, and we respond and react in a way that is unbecoming as to what has actually been said. So when we come to the first chapter of Romans, what Paul just kind of jumped out of the gate was, he said, "These here, let me give you the examples of how our disordered hearts and minds and desires, how we begin living that out. And he spelled that out in Romans chapter 1. So this is why... Um, Jesus says, if we're going to be made a new creation, if we're going to be, have our woundedness healed, if we're going to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, we must be born again, right? We have to have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ where we experience him as our Savior and Lord, the forgiver of our sins, so that the Spirit of God might indwell us because he is the transforming agent who wants to bring healing where there is woundedness in the depth of your soul. And so Jesus came to provide that for us, to help us preserve through the struggles of life. So needless to say, when you came to faith in Christ, uh, all of that woundedness like just didn't get healed. Like it just didn't go away. Right? You were still saying the same things about yourself in your mind as you always said. You probably struggled with the same coping mechanisms you struggled with before you got saved. And so the Bible says now a lifelong process is God's going to start making us a new creation in Christ. The old, we're already a new creation. The old's gone, the new has come. But for us to experience that day in and day out, it takes the Spirit of God working in us in order to bring that about. Now, here's what Paul's going to say. He says, when you bring all these wounded people into a fellowship of believers, like we're, we're a church here, we all have our own woundedness, we all have our own brokenness, we all have our own coping mechanisms, we all have our own convictions about things, like a conviction is like a deep-seated, like this is it, this is the way it is, we have our own conscience, we have our backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, some of you grew up in the church, some of you didn't grow up in the church, some of you thought, well, I never did that much wrong when I got saved anyways, and, and others of us know that, well, you know, it took a whole lot more grace for us to make it into the kingdom than anybody else. And, and so we bring all of, this, all of these differences, family structures, the way you grew up in life, 
all of that into the body of Christ. And when you pull all of that together, and now God says, I want you to unite your hearts and your mind and your souls for a common purpose. And the common purpose is the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to take the gospel into the world so others might experience the same transformation that you have experienced through your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that takes a lot of fortitude um, because we don't always agree about things. And we have very strong stances on a, lot, a wide variety of issues. So when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which was a church that was deeply divided, they were divided over everything. Who was their favorite pastor, political division. They were even dividing over spiritual gifts of all things. Uh, they were dividing over everything. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit. How many spirits? One into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so what Paul is saying is, I'm calling for you not to, to, to unite yourselves and this was the heart of Jesus when he prayed his priestly prayer before he would leave planet Earth. He prayed that we would be one, that we would be united. Because where you are united, there is power. Where there's unity, where there is division, there is no power. And Paul didn't say, hey, the way you're all going to be united is you're all going to act the same, think the same, dress the same, have the same preferences. You're all going to be alike. That's, that's uniformity. That's not unity. God understands that we are all different and we are all unique and bring a unique perspective into the house of God. And so, you know, this fall when the Ohio State Buckeyes take the field once again and you, there you go, and we have the, we have the offensive team, like you have different players who have different strengths and weaknesses and positions and personalities, but they have one goal in mind, and that goal is to get the ball over the goal line. The defense has one goal in mind, keeping their opponent from getting the ball over their goal line. And so though they are vastly different and have different preferences, they all are there for the united purpose of football. We're here for the united purpose of the gospel. So Paul says, let's be very careful how we unite ourselves in Christ for a common purpose. So here are the principles of maintaining unity he gives to us. Number one is that you bear one another's burdens. 15, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Now remember in chapter 14, Paul says there are strong believers who are strong in their faith. Uh, there are weak believers who are weak in their faith. They're all in the same church. They're all saved. They all love Jesus, trying to get along together. And so some people get into legalism. You know, they come along and say, well, listen, if you're going to be a lover of Christ, you've got to love him like I do and do what I do and the way I do it. And the only way you know you're doing what God wants you to do is you're doing what I want you to do and how I want you to do it. That's legalism, liberalism. On the other extreme is, hey, it doesn't matter what we do as Christians because after all, we're saved, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And we, you know, we have eternal security. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do or how we live. It's all Jesus, right? So it's all God's love. And so we focus only on God's attribute of love with, with, by disregarding all of his other attributes 
of things like holiness and justice. And then Paul says, it's not about legalism, it's not about liberalism, it is about liberty. We are free in Christ to do certain things, but it might be that you're new in the faith and it's like, this is difficult for you. And so he was talking about, you know, diet and days and all these things and and these were disputable matters. And he says, we all have our personal preferences, right? We have our personal preferences over music, over the style of dress, over preaching, over programming. And the trouble is we, we begin to place our personal preferences over the proclamation of the gospel or why we are here together as a body of Christ to love one another and to bear one another's burdens and to lift one another up because to bear a burden means I'm going to give up my conclusions about you for the sake of the gospel. So let's say, for example, I, I, you, you're doing something and it's a disputable thing. Like, you know, the Bible doesn't forbid you from doing it. You know, if God forbids something, then certainly I'm not going to do that. If God says you can do this, and certainly I have the liberty in Christ to do it, but it might be a disputable matter. And, but if we're not careful, we become very judgmental of one another because based on my convictions and my conscience, I might think you shouldn't be doing that. And so then I come and confront you with that and say, hey, if you really love Jesus, if you're really, uh, you know, uh, walking with the Lord, you wouldn't be doing that. You wouldn't be engaged in that. And that's, that's uh, Paul says, hey, uh, we got to give that up. Now, Jesus is going to give us a much better way to deal with these issues. Now, Paul's going to set up the principles for us, and Jesus is going to, here's how you apply these principles. You know, some churches rotate their pastors every three to five years. Sometimes pastors leave after every three, three to five years. You, know, want, you want to know why? Because when a church begins to understand the weaknesses and the strengths of their pastor, and the pastor begins to understand the weaknesses and strengths of their congregation, we can't have Disneyland anymore. It's like getting married. You know, marriage is wonderful about the first three or four months, and then all of a sudden you wake up and think, who in the world did I marry? Like, what, what the heck? I didn't sign up for this. And the honeymoon is suddenly over. Now I can leave the church and pack up myself and my sermons and go to another church. And they'll think I'm great and wonderful for about the first six months. And you guys would get a new pastor and you think he's great and wonderful for about the first six months. And then you begin to understand his strengths and weaknesses and him you. And be all the same thing all over again. I've been here for 24 years. So you know my strengths and you know my weaknesses. You know I'm a visionary, but I'm a horrible administrator. So this is one of my strengths and weaknesses. There are a lot of things I have strengths and weaknesses. The fact is we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to help one another to become all that Jesus wants us to become. Number two is we build one another up. He says in verse two, each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Not to tear him down. How do you build up somebody and how do you tear them down? Your words. Nothing builds someone up or tears them down quicker than the words that you use. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, Do not let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only that which is helping somebody or building somebody up because he understood that nothing crushes a relationship with somebody quicker than the words that you use. The Bible says that death and life is in the power of the tongue. Words are powerful. And so Paul reminds us that we are to build one another up. We're not going to tear each other down. Most people are desperately in need of an encouraging word. 
but the world is quick to criticize. Float something out on Facebook and see how that works out. Give an opinion. You'll get criticism really quick, or you might get words of encouragement. So we want to build one another up through the words that we use. Jesus is going to talk about this in our application. Number three is to live like Jesus. Verse three, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And so um, what did Jesus do? When people insulted him, when they used words against him, how did he respond? Was he just like quick to like, uh, you know, just fire back? Now, now, sometimes he would use what were seemingly critical words against the scribes and the Pharisees. But you have to understand that Jesus confronted them with truth. But he did so couched in grace because he realized that the scribes and Pharisees were leading people astray from the gospel, that, from the kingdom that he came to usher into humanity's existence. But Jesus, by and large, it doesn't matter how sinful the person might be, he did not come to that individual with a condemning attitude or words. Look at the woman at the well. She had been married many, many times, and the person she was living with was not even her spouse. Did Jesus come at her with condemnation and words of destruction? No. He came with words that gave her life. Words that were the living well. Words that were enabled to draw her into a relationship with himself and forever change her life. Number four, let God's word strengthen you and encourage you. Verse four, for everything that is written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance, the encouragement of scripture might have what? Hope. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you are reading not a fairy tale. You're reading stories about real people in a real time frame, in a real circumstance and situation, engaged in a real relationship with God. Here's what I want you to encourage you to do, is that when you move from Old Testament into New Testament, you don't want to look at just the Old Testament and New Testament as something, you know, that is disconnected from me. I want you to insert yourself into those stories because here's what the Old Testament says to me is that God is real and that God is involved and he is engaged in our lives and he desires to bring hope and hope is the anticipation of what God is going to do and so if God is bringing hope and encouragement and comfort into the lives of those in the Old Testament and the New Testament when I read the Bible I want to insert myself into those stories because I know that when I'm walking through that similar valley of the shadow of death that what God did in their lives he's willing to do in mine and he's willing to do in yours so that that reading the Bible doesn't just become some disconnected disjointed kind of you know thing that I just do it's like I want to have an encounter with the living God every single time I pick up the Word of God. I want to know how God's going to bring me comfort and encouragement. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, which means to be a comforter and an encourager. He wants to interact, to transform, to renew, to build our faith, and to deepen our walk with Him. And the greatest encouragement that we can have is serving and loving and believing and trusting our God. And if you are not spending time in your word, then you are missing out and you are separating yourself from that 
supernatural engagement you can be having with God day in and day out. Number five, let's let God's power develop and mature you. Verse five, it says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ so that you will with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the mark of maturity? The mark of maturity is not how many Bible verses you have memorized or how, how much of the Bible you've read. The mark of spiritual maturity is, is not, you know, how, how often you fast. All of those things are great and important. But the Bible over and over again says, if you want to know the mark of your maturity level, just look at how well you get along with other people. There it is. There it is. How well can you get along with others, especially those who disagree with you, those who hurl insults at you, those things that Jesus himself experienced, but yet he did not let that ruffle his feathers to the degree that he was going to judge and criticize and be critical of those who were critical of him. Very important. Number six, accept one another. Verse seven, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And so we want this to be an accepting place, right? I want this church to be a place where people can bring their hurts, their habits, their hangups, their brokenness, their, their uh, woundedness, where they can receive healing from the Lord and be restored, whether it's physical or woundedness in your soul. Either way, God has the power to heal, desires to heal, and he longs for you to experience his amazing grace. And number seven is to serve one another. He says in um, verse eight, he says, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And he quotes several different verses out of the Old Testament. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these are the principles that Paul gives to us and says, hey, if we're going to maintain unity amidst our diversity... The way that we're going to do that is this. We're going to bear one another's burdens. We are going to build one another up. We're going to live like Jesus, and we're going to strengthen and encourage, and we're going to mature in Christ as we dive into God's word, and we accept one another. We want to serve each other like Jesus. So Jesus says, let me show you what a servant does when we have disagreements over disputable matters where we cannot seem to get along. What do we do? Well, let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, his, you know, his most, most lengthy teaching in all of the New Testament. He's coming towards the end of that message. And he gives us a very practical application on how we are going to handle others who may disagree with us. Um, what is the practical application for maintaining unity because here's the tendency if I disagree with you if I can't get along with you I become critical of you I become judgmental of you and so this is what really what Jesus is going to hit on is about being judgmental I mean has everybody anyone ever confronted you who thought they knew better than you and had this attitude like well let me be helpful to you 
and then they just start judging you or criticizing you or, you know, what you're doing or you haven't done or how you're dressing or how you should dress or what you should do over here and over there. When I was in college, um, I worked for a, a butcher, and uh, I worked for him uh, in the store. Uh, it was an IGA store in Bluefield, Virginia, and I worked for the butcher for four years. And so my responsibility was to clean the butcher shop in the evenings. Uh, I loved the job because I, you know, after they closed down the butcher shop, I'd go in any time I want, just as long as it was clean by morning. Uh, and I would restock the meat cases. And sometimes I would substitute for the girl who wrapped the meat uh, if she was gone. And uh, at night, uh, in the grocery store side, I would stock shelves when the trucks came in. So I worked in this store for, uh, like I say, four years. And uh, one red cashier who worked for uh, the store, um, I'd known her for three years. I'd been witnessing to the butcher. I'd been witnessing to the guy who was the supervisor over the... the uh, Department of, you know, vegetables, and all of a sudden that word's escaped me. Produce, there you go, produce. And uh, so I was, you know, been sharing with this girl, and, and, and because she'd been there so long, she, you know, and so I was like really close. I mean, she's really open to the gospel and just hearing about Christ. And so one night she got off of work, and she was going to a party with her friends after work, and I was at the front of the store, and she had bought a couple bottles of wine and put it on the, you know, on the, was paying for it. And there was a man behind her, unbeknownst to her. She didn't know him. I didn't know him, who, who he was. Uh, but when he saw her purchasing wine, um, he made it be known that he was a pastor. And then very vocally and very rudely began berating her uh, about the sin of drinking alcohol and how she was going to go to hell because she had wine in her presence. And this just went on and on. And by the time he got finished with her, she left the store. She was hurt. She was embarrassed. She was angry. I mean, she was fuming. And I'm telling you, I was young and dumb back then. I just wanted to punch the guy out. I'm like, dude, I've been, I've been trying to share with this girl for a long time now, and you've just undone everything. Her greatest fear about Christians, you just reinforced it in her mind. That we're just a bunch of judgmental, critical people who just don't like anyone, and we just want to judge everybody by what they do. And so it took me a long time to be, begin to build any rapport back with her because she was, she was so hurt. Um... There's three things wrong with that. First of all, what he was belittling her over is what Paul would have called a disputable matter. Secondly, this guy didn't even know her. He had no idea who she was. She had no idea about her background, what she's come through, how wounded she might have been or was. And thirdly, I mean, she, I mean, she left the store hurt and embarrassed, and I don't blame her. Listen, he could care less about her as a person. He was just trying to make his point. He didn't care anything about her. And that's what a judgmental, critical attitude does. We don't mind tearing people down, but we have no intention to building them up. And this is what Jesus is going to confront in Matthew chapter 7. Listen, judging is making a negative evaluation of others 
without standing in solidarity with them. In other words, we judge others, we're criticizing them, but we're not caring for them as a person who loves them and wants to help them. We just want to be critical and judgmental. And unfortunately, this is the label the church of Jesus Christ carries with it in our day and time. That's what we're known for above all other things. If you are assessing someone, someone's behavior, that is a necessary part of life. Judging and assessing are two different things. As a parent, you assess your child's behavior, right? As a parent, you know what's healthy and what's unhealthy for your children as they're growing up and as they are maturing and that you have to protect them in different areas. You have to help steer and guide their wayward behaviors from time to time. Why do you do that? Because you love them. You care about them. You want the best for them. But somebody who's just judgmental and critical could care less about the person. They're not after their best interest. They're just trying to shove their opinion or their conviction onto somebody else. Paul is saying, in essence, is this, and what he warned about in Corinthians, as well in the book of Romans, this is what destroys churches. The church I pastored in Alabama long before I got there, at one time it split because <laughs> they split a couple different times. But the one time they split is because the people could not come to an agreement as to whether or not to have the piano on the left side or the right side of the stage. Now there's something to split over, right? There are two reasons why we are quick to judge others. Number one is we, we are trying to fix people. We think that our verbal assault will set them straight. And we reason if I give so-and-so a really good talking to, they'll just shape up and do what I want them to do. right? And the reason why this becomes um, extremely... Um, well, it's just a way that we, we tend to, to go at it is because... Uh, we see that, it, we see some, if, if you verbally assault somebody, you can see some changes in their behavior, so it reinforces, um, you know, the quality of this. For example, if you're a coach, right, you got a player who's just like, they're just slacking, right? They're not giving you 100%. What do coaches do? They yell at them. All right, I played baseball for several years. I, I know all about that. The coaches are yelling at you and screaming at you. But why? Because they want to fix your behavior. They want to change what you're doing and the way that you're doing it. Coaches do this. Sometimes school teachers can do this. Churches can do this. Um, bosses do this with their employees. And so the people we judge or condemn often shrivel back. They get angry because they're under our judgment. But they realize if they change something... And, and pull themselves in alignment with what you want from them, then you'll stop yelling at them. This is our society. <laughs> we just all yell at each other. Nobody's, nobody's dialoguing. Nobody's listening to one another. We're just yelling at one another because we're trying to fix people the way we want them to be fixed. Now, some of you, you're on the opposite extreme, is that you just say nothing. Right? You're just, you just like a turtle in a shell, and you don't say anything, and so um, you can, uh, you have two ways to deal with negative behavior of other people. You can either attack them, or you can do nothing. But neither one of those flows from a heart of love. Neither one of them. And neither one of them fixes the problem. Listen, you can force people to make a change. 
But that doesn't mean that they're going to maintain it. Again, judgment is the deconstruction. It's not the reconstruction. It might be that you do want to change something, but you don't know how to change it. In other words, I can be very critical and say to somebody, I was an addict, so I can say to somebody, you shouldn't be addicted to to alcohol. You shouldn't be addicted to drugs. You need to stop that. Get off of it. Leave it behind. Just leave it behind. And they're like, I've tried a thousand times, but I keep going back to it. I don't know how to change. And we don't know what to say to them. For example, when your children are growing up, and one of the things parents always say to their kids, do not put your hand on a hot stove. It's going to burn it. And what do children say? Why? Right? So what do we use out of frustration after they ask that question that, to give us that same response a hundred times? Because I said so. I'm your parent. Would it not be more beneficial if we took their little hand and said, you know, if you put your hand on that stove, it's going to burn so bad and you're going to cry and it's going to peel off all the skin. We're going to have to go to the doctors. They're going to put stuff on your hand, wrap it up. You can't use your hand for a long, long time. I'm, t- I'm just trying to save you from pain. Now, depending upon their level of maturity, whether they understand that or not, at least you have given them a reason why you're not wanting them to do it. And hopefully that might get through to them. I can't change a person's life just by yelling at them, by um, saying to somebody, get off drugs, get off drugs, get off this, don't do that, you shouldn't be doing that, this is harmful to you, harmful to you, don't you see where you're heading with this? It might be, watch this, they're operating out of their woundedness. I'm trying to change their behavior, but the only way their behavior changes is after they get healed of their woundedness, not the other way around. Because if I change their behavior prematurely, all they'll do is they might, they might stop this coping mechanism. They'll just pick up one over here because they still haven't been healed in here. And this is where Jesus is going to go with all of this as we're dealing with people. So he says, don't come across as, you know, as, as someone who is a superior saint. We want to come across as someone who is a fellow struggler because we all struggle with something. Here's the thing about a judgmental attitude. A judgmental attitude is an attitude of superiority. Like, I'm so superior to you. I'm so more spiritual than you. If you were as spiritual as I was, you wouldn't be doing those things. And what we neglect to remember is we have our own broken areas. And there's not a one of us without any. So Jesus gives us a warning. Jesus offers And the second thing that, um, let me give you the fill in the blank because otherwise you'll be writing me letters. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And so we try to fix people or it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? So that's why we tend to judge others, right? Because if if I I have this attitude of superiority, but when I carry an attitude of superiority, I, I neglect, I might magnify your weaknesses, but I tend to disregard my own. Right, so Jesus gives us a warning in this passage. So let's pick it up in Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if asked for fish, you will give him a snake? If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you when you ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And so what is the warning that Jesus gives to us? Because it's a pretty stern warning. And then he kind of gives like a funny joke. Now, we wouldn't consider it a joke with our Western minds. But when he talks about a plank in your eye and a speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye, that they would have been busting the gut listening to this story that Jesus is giving to them. And so what is, what is he trying to say here? Um, sometimes we take this to mean that if we judge somebody, then, you know, God's grace is going to be taken away from us, and, you know, judge lest you, you know, so that you too will not be judged. Um, he uses here the image of a measuring cup. He says it will be measured back to you. And so what Jesus is saying is simply this, and this is a kind of a fill in the blank. If you judge someone, be prepared to be judged by others, all right? If I have a judgmental, critical attitude, what do people do in response? Do they say, well, thank you very much for giving me that word of knowledge that you just placed upon me. I've, I've been so blessed by that. No, they're going to, they're going to, they immediately become offensive, and they're, immediately they're going to get, come back at you, right? So if they hear something like you said about them in the workplace, and it gets back to me, then all of a sudden, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to counter that by judging you, right? I'm going to spread my own little rumors around the workplace so it gets back to you about how I feel about you. Well, the same thing can happen in churches, is that we can... Uh, start judging one another, and we, we spread the, the judgment through what we call uh, oftentimes um, prayer requests. Uh, let, why, you, Denny, you need to pray for someone, so I'm going to tell you what they've been doing, brother. You, you need to pray for them, and, and so by way of gossip, uh, I make it formulated into a prayer request. I'm really judging the person because um, maybe perhaps they said at one time something that was negative and derogatory about me. And so Jesus says, if you judge someone, be prepared to be judged in return. And so he uses this, this um, joke about a log that's in your eye, right? So many people interpret the log to mean that this is your own sinfulness. That like, if you get rid of your own sinfulness, now you have the right to judge people. Well, that would be totally against what Jesus is teaching. Right? Wouldn't he, that's not even sound logic. Jesus doesn't say, well, get to the place where you had no sin in your life. Now you feel free to judge people because you are superior to them. That's not what he's saying at all. 
And what Jesus is saying through this passage is that the log is not our sinfulness, but is the act of judging itself. Judging others makes it impossible. Watch this. When you judge other people, it makes it impossible for you to help them. Because what's their natural reaction? Push back. Or they're going to you know, crawl within their shell. And I don't want anything to do with you. They're not going to want to communicate with you um, because you have wrongly judged them. In other words, the intention might be good, but the method is absolutely, totally wrong. My goal, our goal should be to help one another. We want to build one another up. We want to help each other grow in our relationship with God. We want to help each other grow in our walk and our relationship with Christ. And so then all of a sudden, Jesus laps into this thing talking about pearls with four pigs. <laughs> like, what the heck is that? Now, he's not switched subjects here. He's talking, this whole passage I've read to you is about helping people. So what does casting your pearls before pigs have to do with helping people? Well, here's what I know about pigs. Most people look at this passage and go, well, what Jesus is saying is, listen, if somebody doesn't want to listen to you, you know, don't take your wisdom and cast your pearls before pigs because they're not going to, they don't want anything to do with it anyways. That's not what he's talking about here. You know what I know about pigs? Because I had a pig farmer in my first church and I helped him slop those hogs on many occasions. Here's what I know about pigs. They don't eat pearls. They don't. They can't digest them. And if you feed them a steady diet of pearls, they won't eat for days. But I'm going to tell you what they will do. When they get hungry, they'll eat you. One of the things that Charles would warn me about all the time is to listen, when those sows are hungry and they're squealing, you fall in that pen, they will eat you up. My wife's sister was a commercial underwriter for State Farm Insurance. She had to go on a lot of pig farms, and that's one of the things they warned her, is you, if you fall into one of those pig troughs, those sows will take you out. And so what Jesus is saying to us through... Um, just as a pig can't digest pearls, people can't digest being judged or condemned. It's not helpful. You might feel better about yourself, but you've not helped them one iota. Now, how many, this is why people can't tolerate sometimes a few minutes at a large family gathering. I've officiated enough weddings to know when it comes to reception time, when the, the, the bride and her, her mother, they're trying to figure out the seating chart, well, you can't set this family member with that family member because they can't get along. And she said she ain't coming unless she's sitting with this group over here. And it's like this, you know, jigsaw puzzle they're trying to work out because why? They can't get along with each other. And this is, this is Jesus' whole point. If I just come at people with a judgmental, critical attitude, I'm, I really don't have their best interest at heart. I'm not coming at them out of love with an attitude of service. I'm just trying to make my point or fix them or feel better about myself rather than loving them to the point that I'm actually trying to help them grow in their walk with God. So here's what Jesus went on to say. He said, don't ask, or don't judge. You ask and you pray. He says, ask, seek, 
and knock. Now, all of a sudden, people look at this and they go, well, Jesus just made a transition. He made a shift. He's talking about praying. No, he is talking about praying, but he's talking, watch this, he's talking about praying in the context of helping somebody. So what does it mean to ask? This is so, so important. I'm going to wrap this up in just three minutes here. Stay with me. The first thing is that you pray for them. And why do you pray for them? Because as you are praying for somebody, your heart over time begins to make a shift. And you begin to become compassionate for them. And you begin to see them in a different light. When, when I got saved and I was so, so angry and bitter at my father for leaving us, I mean, God, I had to deal with this issue, and as I began to pray for my father, my heart began to shift. I started having compassion for him rather than, you know, anger or bitterness because it was essential that I make that heart shift, and that's, if I'm going to love you and I'm going to help you, I want to be compassionate towards you. I I want your best interest in, in my heart and in my mind, and listen, prayer also helps us to accurately assess another person's situation. How many times have I been praying for somebody and the gentle correction of the Holy Spirit comes along and says, for example, uh, I may assume that, again, that person has a certain weakness and I assume that I ought to be praying that God will help them with that weakness when the Holy Spirit comes along and says, no, 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 I want to help them with that weakness, but I want you to understand beneath the surface there is a woundedness that has led to the weakness, that has led to the feelings, that's led to the behavior. It's not about me changing the behavior. It's about me coming underneath the surface and healing the woundedness. Now let me show you where the woundedness is. In our church, in our prayer team here at our church, we call this theophostic praying. Theo means God, phostic simply means light. In other words, as I'm praying for someone, as, we're, as a team we're praying for someone, we would ask God's Holy Spirit to shed light on the woundedness in the depth of that person's soul that was resulting in the behavior that was a coping mechanism in their life, that was, and it was a destructive habit. Listen, God can heal their woundedness. I can't, you can't, but he can. But most people never understand their woundedness. They only focus on the behavior. God's Holy Spirit wants to get us at where the woundedness has taken place. So it all begins there. And prayer is a wonderful gift from God that helps us in three ways. First, we're inviting God in this situation. And we're going to have more compassion for that person. And listen, God brings wisdom to the table and he helps us to see what he sees because God does want to heal what he wants to heal. And he says, then we are to ask and pray, seek and knock. Those are words of what? Persistence. Don't give up. Don't stop. Do I keep praying because my faith isn't strong enough or that God's power isn't powerful enough? Absolutely not. For whatever reason, sometimes it takes a while for you to help, for God to get his Holy Spirit in there and enable you to see and for the person to see where the woundedness is because they have so suppressed it and so camouflaged it and so covered it up and they don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to, they don't want to deal with it because when you open up a wound, guess what? It hurts. And people will just rather like, I don't want to deal with that in my life. But the only way you're going to heal 
What is wounded is to allow the Spirit of God to do surgery. And sometimes God uses us, fellow believers in Christ, to help people come to that point of experiencing the Holy Spirit's healing. Listen, my wife and I can give you a lot of testimonies about how God has done this in multiple people's lives. You know, here was the behavior, and they, you know, even the person with the behavior thought the reason I behave this way is this, this, and this, and then God's Holy Spirit comes along and says, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not about this, this, and this. It's about this down here. Now, let's get this healed, and it'll take care of this, this, and this. And it works every time. Because when God heals, he heals. And Jesus, he just wraps this up and he ends this section with the most famous words, remember the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated. If every human being lived by that golden rule, we'd have a whole lot more harmony and unity in the body of Christ. Now, here's the end result of all this when we walk in unity. It is what unleashes the anointing and the power and the cascading of the Holy Spirit into our realm and into our presence. And when the Holy Spirit's here and when he shows up, things happen. Things begin to happen. God functions where there's unity. He does not where there's disunity. So what does Satan want to do? He wants to divide the house because Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot, will not, ever stand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us a unifying agent, um, the person of the Holy Spirit, Father, who enables us to uh, be who we cannot be on our own, to do what we can never do on our own. Father, I have no capacity to see beneath the surface of somebody's life, but you do. Lord, you know us, each and every one of us, in intimate detail. You know our hurts, you know our woundedness, you know about our pain, you know about everything that has passed through our lives and what it has ultimately done to us. And so, Lord, I pray, um, Father, first of all, uh, for healing in the body of Christ. I pray for unity in the body. And, Lord, may that unity come out of the healing that we experience. So I pray that the light of your Holy Spirit would shine in the depths of our souls, Father, during the course of this week and begin to, to reveal to us those things that are have been hidden, those things that we have refused to deal with so that we might experience the true, authentic healing of your spirit. That, Father, we would walk in freedom and liberty that Jesus came to secure for each and every one of us. So, Lord, where there is healing in the body of Christ, there is, there is then confession of sin. And, Lord, we know that by confessing to one another, by asking others to pray for us and to walk alongside of us to help bear our burden. Uh, Lord, as we are trying to, to experience this inner healing within us, um, God, that you would surround us with those individuals who would help us in this process. 
Father, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, for this time that we've had to worship you. Lord, I pray, um, Lord, as we leave this place, that your Holy Spirit would just continue his, um, his work within us throughout the course of this week. It's my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we close out in song. And if you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is where it all begins. Because without Christ, uh, without his saving work in our lives, we have no Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, we have no healing. We have, we are lacking things, a lot of things, love and encouragement and the things that we long for in our lives. God wants to restore you. He wants to restore the relationship. He wants to restore your life. He wants good things for you. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father down to us. And it comes from the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would open your heart your life to receive Him today. As we close in this song, and I'm here at the front, I'd love to speak with you about that after the service. So if you need to come uh, and speak to me, please do.